grace and peace to you from the Lord who is full of compassion and mercy. Amen. John the Baptist. We're going to meet John again in the new year in the season of Epiphany. And we hear from him a number of times during the Advent season here, our current church season, because this is a season of reflection and preparation for Christmas. And Epiphany, John is also featured there because that's the season when we read about Jesus making himself known. In Epiphany, we read the stories of Jesus' baptism, uh, his calling of the first disciples, his first miracles, and John stands in both of those seasons. So his ministry began before Jesus showed himself publicly. Now, John was chosen by God to go and gather crowds to himself out by the Jordan River, baptizing them, telling them about the Messiah who would soon reveal himself. That's Advent, this preparation for the Messiah. And then Jesus came. He went out to John. He was baptized by John. That's Epiphany, Jesus being revealed. That's all the recognition, though, that John gets during the church year, right? Our annual cycle of seasons that trace Jesus' life, Advent and Epiphany. We don't hear about John at Christmas. He fades into the background between Advent and Epiphany. He pulls back to let his younger cousin Jesus take center stage. And then he steps forward briefly only to point at Jesus, right? To point at the Lamb of God, come to take away sin. If... As Jesus says in our gospel reading, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Doesn't it feel like he gets kind of short shrift then? But that wasn't John's concern. He didn't care whether he got short shrift. He just wanted to point to Jesus. When Jesus' ministry began gaining traction, one of John's disciples came to him and complained, hey, this, this Jesus guy you baptized, teacher, he's stealing our thunder. John the Apostle's Gospel, chapter 3, John the Baptist corrects his eager student, tells him, Look, my joy was in waiting for him. Now, Jesus must become greater, I must become less. John knew that what his Savior had come to do for him, for everyone, was worth way more than all the fame and the adoring crowds that John could have wanted. But then John was thrown in prison for his preaching. See, John had publicly rebuked Herod, the ruler of Judea, because Herod was in a relationship with his sister-in-law, Herodias, who was also either his cousin or his niece. Royal family bloodlines sometimes get pretty tangled, just as true 2,000 years ago as it was uh, in our own more modern era. Herod and Herodias wanted to kill John, but they were kept from doing so because the public loved him. So they threw him in prison and waited. Waited until the public forgot about John and then they could kill him. And so John sat there in prison waiting, knowing that he was not going to get out, knowing every day that he might wake up and find out that this was the day Herod and Herodias would finally decide to execute him. Every day he wondered whether or not Jesus was going to do everything that John had told people Jesus would do. We heard last week what John preached about the Messiah from Matthew 3. After me comes one who is more powerful than I. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John had been waiting to see that come to pass. Every time he had visitors come to him in prison, John asked them, What's Jesus doing? 
That's where our gospel reading picks up today. Verse 2, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? John was at a low point. His understanding of the Messiah's job failed to match up with what Jesus was actually doing. What precisely did John think Jesus was going to do? We're not told, but apparently the general kind of low-key nature of Jesus' ministry led John to wonder, should we expect someone else? Where's the unquenchable fire? Where's the power? Is this it? John is not the only person who's ever felt this way. We live every day running up against this fact. God does not always do what we think he should do. He lets our lives get messy. He lets our kids go and do something foolish that might bring disgrace on them and financial burden on us. He allows us to be led by politicians who are so much less capable and principled than we would be or our preferred candidate would have been. He lets a chronic health issue arise that causes us pain and suffering. Doesn't life make you ask John's question sometimes? Should we expect someone else? Is there going to be someone else, something else, to bring order and stability and peace to our lives? Where can we find hope? There's a painting by the Mexican artist Frida Kahlo called Without Hope. It depicts her experience when a prolonged illness had forced her to be bedridden and her doctor prescribed that she be uh, fed blended raw foods every two hours through a funnel. It's a powerful piece of art, but if your stomach is easily turned, uh, I'll, I'll just warn you. I think it's worth seeing. Go and check it out today, but I'll warn you. In the painting, Kalo draws herself bound in bed beneath a massive funnel filled with disgusting things. She looks out of the painting at you as the food is dripping down to her mouth and she's crying. On the back of the painting, she wrote, A mí no me queda... Ya ni la menor esperanza. In English, that's not even the least hope remains to me anymore. Texts we're reading this morning speak especially powerfully to that kind of hopelessness. The hopelessness of the chronically ill. People who feel imprisoned, like John the Baptist, but whose prison isn't a cell in Herod's dungeons, it's their very own body. Yeah, what John experienced was hard, but some of you know what it's like to live out a life sentence in your own skin. When we experience hopelessness from a source like that, we can lose the desire for life itself. We need hope to be able to get up in the morning, to want to get up in the morning, right? The book of Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. If we don't have hope, the very core of us is struck. I already talked about Frida Kahlo. I want to let you hear someone else's words about this topic. Uh, this is a, from a September article in the Times about assisted suicide in Canada. A woman named Cheryl, who has a progressively worsening but non-fatal spinal condition, is profiled in this article. She was approved for assisted death, for medically aided suicide. Here's how she describes the thoughts that lead her, uh, that lead others, to consider that kind of an option. She says, it felt like a weight had been lifted off my chest. You can still have a good death. You can have your family there with you. It's traumatic still to them, but it's not the same as the shock of suicide, which people will do when they're at pain levels where there's no hope. Our culture wants to make an issue like that into a political football. And when they do, we actually need to see that it's not real clear cut there, right? There's some people on the right 
who support assisted suicide because they see it as an issue where the government shouldn't be in control of our lives, but there are some people on the right who would object to it because they would say it's just destabilizing to society. Right? Some on the left would affirm this as a right to dignity that all people have. Other people on the left object because they fear that euthanasia could be used against people who are powerless or marginalized, like eugenic sterilization was a century ago. So as Christians, we don't treat this as a political issue. Right? We don't look to political philosophies to tell us what we should think about such things. We should look to God's word. God tells us there, our lives, our times, they're in his hands. Right? He tells us that we are clay in the hands of the potter. It's not our job to talk back, to question him. But we're also told that he loves us, that he intends to do away with our suffering once and for all. He tells us that he himself came down to earth to feel pain, excruciating, torturous pain. And unless we ground our response to pain and suffering in Jesus, in the God who came down to earth, we're only ever going to argue politics. We'll never offer real comfort. We need to hear what Jesus says to someone who doesn't have hope. And in our gospel reading, Jesus sent back an answer to hopeless John that referenced the words of our text from Isaiah this morning. Jesus told John's disciples, Go and tell John this, The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. John needed hope. He had doubts about what he had hoped for, and so Jesus sent him back into the Bible, referencing Isaiah's words, so John could see exactly what the Bible said about the Messiah, so John could see that Jesus was doing everything the scriptures had said he would, so John could know, so John could trust, so John could have hope. God uses two pictures for hope in our Old Testament reading. The first is flowers blooming forth across the desert. That's a beautiful metaphor for restored hope, right? Those situations in life where we feel hopeless, those wastelands suddenly bursting with joy and fulfillment. It's the second picture, though, that I find really striking. Verse 3, God says, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way with his message of love. Hopelessness can affect us in this way. It robs us of our strength, of our ability to act and to do. So we sit unable to get up. We drop whatever we had before us. Just let it go. Our knees give way. Our hands are feeble. This kind of hopelessness comes, ultimately, when we are disappointed in our God because he doesn't measure up to what we expected, what we think we need. Jesus knows that we, our sinful natures, are always looking for a different kind of Jesus. Whatever disappointments we personally experience, whether physical or relational or professional, those disappointments can drag us into hopelessness if we've been looking for a different Jesus than the real one. And so Jesus says gently but firmly to John and to us, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is anyone who understands who Jesus really is. Not the Jesus we might want, but the Jesus who was actually sent to us by God. See, the Jesus who was sent into our world didn't come to build an earthly kingdom where the politics always suit our sensibilities. The Jesus who was sent into our world isn't a divine crypto pusher here to answer all our financial problems. Here's a hard one. The Jesus who was sent into our world didn't come to end sickness and suffering in our lives. The Apostle Paul knew this, right? Three times he pleaded with Jesus to remove what he called a thorn in his flesh, and Jesus answered him, No, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. 
That's what Jesus came to be for us in our world, God's living grace. An innocent man given on behalf of sinners. A lamb sacrificed for our guilt, an instrument of reconciliation between us and the holy God. More than that, Jesus is the promise that there's more than this life of disappointment and pain. The Apostle Paul says that if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied above all people. If only for this world Jesus wanted to make a difference, why would we care? Even in this life, if Jesus would take away all our disappointments, all the pain we have right now, this world could and would heap more on us. That's what it does best. No, Jesus isn't a promise about this life, answers for this life. He's a promise of life eternal, resurrection, suffering not just removed but banished from existence in a world where all pain and sin will have passed away. Maybe you personally aren't afflicted with a chronic ailment, but there's always something in each of our lives that's persistently frustrating and painful, right? A relationship that's clouded by hurt and anger, a sin that won't let you go, a heartfelt desire that has been dangled beyond your grasp for years. Hear these words from the book of James again. Be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Here's what we do with these hurts and fears. We can't bottle them up. That'll destroy us, so we share them. With our brothers and sisters, we confess what it is that hurts and frustrates and provokes. Then we get to hear that sweet promise again. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Amen.